Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23? Now, if you're new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we find ourselves at the end of chapter 23, which takes place a couple of days before Passover, which means it also takes place a couple of days before the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I am a believer, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the actual crucifixion of Matthew's Gospel. I'm a believer that Jesus was not crucified on Friday. A lot of our traditions are wrong, okay? Uh, I believe he was crucified on Thursday. Now, that's not going to affect your salvation if you agree with me or whatever. I'm just going to throw it out to you. I believe that Passover of this week that we have here in Matthew's Gospel began... On Wednesday evening, remember now the Jewish calendar was, was lunar, uh, and so the new day started at sunset. And the Passover would begin on Wednesday evening after sundown, and last until sundown on Thursday. Uh, it was early Thursday morning, I believe, that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, quickly rushed through a couple of mock trials, one religious in front of the Sanhedrin, the other civil in front of Pilate, and then being nailed to the cross by 9 a.m. Now, a couple of days earlier on Sunday, which would have been Palm Sunday, in fact, today's Palm Sunday, so, okay, but a couple of days earlier on Sunday, Jesus had made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, as we have pointed out, that Sunday was a very special day, one that Daniel had prophesied about 600 years earlier, the day that Messiah would present himself as king to the nation. This was also an event that the prophet, and many of the prophets talked about, but also an event that the prophet Zechariah talked about. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, he prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, but he is lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, of course, we all know that that was exactly how Jesus rode up to the Mount of Olives on that donkey that Sunday as his disciples lined the road crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm predicting the coming of Messiah. And as Jesus rode up the Mount of Olives, his disciples lined the road, shouting Hosanna, quoting that psalm, indicating they believed Jesus Christ was the Messiah and the fulfillment of that psalm. And as they cried out to him, Hosanna, they, they put palm branches on the road in front of him, which is why that day has been called Palm Sunday to this day. Now, the Jewish people, as we have pointed out, should have known that this was the day God had prophesied through Daniel, the very day Messiah would present himself to the nation as king. What am I talking about? What is this day that God had prophesied through Daniel six centuries earlier? Well, in Daniel 9, God gave to Daniel, through the prophet, to the angel Gabriel, a very incredible prophecy. The prophecy said in part that when the command would go forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, don't forget, Daniel's in Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians had... Uh, had captured the people of Israel. They had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, was in rubble. The temple was in rubble. So Gabriel appears to Daniel at one point uh, and says to him, from the time the commandment goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, start counting, 
173,880 days later, Messiah would present himself to the nation. We know the commandment went forth from King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem on March 14, 445 B.C. If you add 173,880 days to that starting point, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday. This was the day that Jesus had waited for. Several times during his ministry, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Remember that? But he always slipped out from among them. He would say things like, my time has not yet come. But here, for the first time in his ministry, he actually organizes and orchestrates this coronation, if you will. He tells his disciples, go and you'll find a couple of donkeys, a mother and its colt, tied at a certain place. Bring them to me. He orchestrated this. This was his day. His time had come by the time we come to Palm Sunday. And the Jewish people should have known that. And even as Jesus was riding up the Mount of Olives, you've got to imagine the kingdom fever. These guys, this was it in their mind. He's here. He's going to establish the kingdom. And as Jesus rode up the Mount of Olives on that day, and his disciples were going crazy with excitement, Jesus knew what was coming. And so as he approached the summit of the Mount of Olives, he sees the city of Jerusalem laid out before him. And Luke records in his gospel these words, Luke 19, starting in verse 41. Now as he drew near the summit of the Mount of Olives, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you, talking about the city of Jerusalem, and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. Holding them accountable for not knowing prophecy. God had clearly said the day Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem as king. Now, the next day, Monday, which would have been the Monday of Passover week, Jesus spent the day, for the most part, in the temple area teaching, but also rebuking the leaders of Israel, those people that had misled the nation, those people that should have been leading the way in receiving Jesus as Messiah, they were the most vocal critics of Jesus. They were the ones at this very moment organizing against him to have him crucified. In fact, as we have pointed out by this time, the, the leaders in Israel are desperate to find anything they can use against Jesus to have him arrested and crucified. And Jesus uses the opportunity to condemn the hypocrisy, as we have seen in chapter 23. In fact, seven times he calls them hypocrites, and eight times he pronounces woes upon them. And in the scriptures, when God pronounces a woe, listen, it's always a term of judgment. It's always a term of judgment. The eighth woe, which we've already studied, is the climax and the strongest pronouncement of guilt of them all, carrying with it the greatest sentence of judgment. A judgment, listen again, that transcended just the judgment upon the spiritual leaders of Israel, but would encompass the entire nation. Let's read that last woe again, starting in verse 29 of Matthew 23, where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tomb of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, <laughs> we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. 
Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Why? Because they killed the prophets. You're about to kill God's son. They were plotting at that very moment to have Jesus killed. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, broadening it now to the entire nation, all these things will come upon this generation. As we have pointed out, a generation in the Bible is roughly 40 years. And just as Jesus prophesied, God's judgment fell on the nation 38 years later in 70 AD, when the Roman garrison led by Titus Vespasian, the general, surrounded the city, leveled it, destroyed the temple. Uh, not one stone left upon another. But at that time, the Jews were scattered. The nation of Israel came to an end. Came to an end. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus indicts, yes, Israel in general, but Jerusalem in particular, he indicts them one final time before his crucifixion. He said in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that statement by Jesus not only closes out chapter 23, it also transitions us into chapter 24 as we're going to see. But let's focus on these verses this morning. They lay the foundation for chapter 24, and they are very important in and of themselves. First of all, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Whenever the Lord repeats himself, and whenever he says, you know, something like, verily, verily, or right here, he says, um, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He does so for emphasis, indicating that what he's about to say is very important. Don't miss this, okay? He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Let me stop right there. This, of course, uh, takes us back to what he has just gotten done indicting the Jewish people for. He says, every time my father sent you a prophet, you killed that prophet. Every a prophet was a spokesman for God. A prophet was somebody who was God's messenger to the nation. And God most always sent prophets to Israel to call them to repentance because they were living in idolatry and morality and so on. But of course, the people didn't want to be called to repentance. They wanted to go on living in idolatry, immorality, materialism, selfishness, greed, and so on. So every time God tried to send them a prophet to warn them, look, if you don't repent quickly, I'm going to have to judge you. They didn't want to hear it. They killed those prophets. But understand something. There were a lot of false prophets running around Israel at that time as well. Just like there are today, by the way. A prophet is anybody who speaks on behalf of God. It could be a pastor, evangelist, anyone. But there were plenty of false prophets running around back then. Read Jeremiah 23 and other places. And of course, the false prophets were saying to the people of Israel, 
when Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the other good prophets were saying, repent, God's judgment is coming, he loves you, he want, doesn't want to judge you, but you have to repent, turn from your wickedness. The false prophets were saying, ah, I don't listen to these guys. You know, they're, they're negative Nellies. Don't listen to them, all right? You're God's people. God loves you. God's going to bless you. Your enemies will never prosper against you, you know? The people loved that. They wanted to hear that. So they listened to the false prophets, killed the good prophets. Well, it's kind of the same way today. I mean, people aren't killing anybody uh, in the church. Thank God for that. But Paul the Apostles, there's coming a day in the church. And we're here. It's, we've seen the fulfillment of this. When churchgoers would not want to hear sound teaching from God's word, but would want to hear things that would tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. What, what do people want to hear? Tell me how I can be wealthy. Tell me how I can never know sickness. Tell me how my business will prosper. Tell me how I can drive a Mercedes and live in a big palatial mansion. Tell me these things. Tell me how God wants to bless me. You know, don't worry about my life that I'm living with somebody or that I'm ripping people off at work. You know, just tell me how much God wants to bless me. You see these characters on TV? Look at when the camera pans the audience. It's packed, isn't it? It's absolutely packed. I watched one of these guys on TV one time speak to a packed coliseum, packed stadium, okay? Because we're living in a day when people want their ears tickled. Like the people in Israel's day, they don't want to hear what God. Pick up your cross and deny yourself? Get thee behind me, Satan, all right? Tell me how to prosper. Tell me how to be blessed. They don't want to hear when God says, hey, repent for how you're living. You know that's not the way I've told you to live. You know it's wrong. I can't bless you if you're going to continue living contrary to what I've said. No, it's too negative today. Just keep it positive, uplifting. And that's why we see this thing going on today. Now, Jesus went on to say how often, speaking to Jerusalem and its inhabitants, how often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I want you to notice the words of Jesus Christ very carefully here. He said, I wanted to do this. I wanted something for you, but you were not willing. Now, guys, right here in this verse, we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility taught side by side. We see this taught in many places in the New Testament. Turn to John 3.16. Hopefully most of you have it memorized. And I better not hear the gold pages separating... <laughs> I mean, I might let you slide with Micah or Amos. John 3.16, I better not hear gold pages separating like you've never been there before, all right? Unless you just pick that Bible up on your way to church, I'll give you the pastor. John 3.16, listen. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. Why did he give his only begotten son? Because he didn't want to see anyone perish in hell, but that all would have eternal life. That's what's God's heart, right? Now, that's what God wants. What's our responsibility? That whosoever believes in Jesus would not perish in hell. All right? God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. He sent his son to die so that nobody would have to go to hell. God is a God of love. There are those who think because God is a God of love, he just won't send anybody to hell. His love will not allow him to do that. Well, look, if you think God's love is going to save you, can I just say this? God's love is not going to save you. God's love cannot save you. In fact, God's love has never saved anybody. 
what it has done is provided a way by which you might be saved. But you have to believe in Jesus. You have to turn control of your life over to him. That's our responsibility. And as much as God loves us, if we don't turn our lives to, over to Christ for him to be our Lord, then God's love can't save us. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 3. Paul said to Timothy, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who, listen, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, God desires all men to be saved, all men and women, all mankind. Are all mankind going to be saved? God wants it. We know right here God wants all men to be saved. Will all people be saved just because God wants it? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? No. Again, we have to exercise our free will to receive Christ. And I'll give you one more, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look, the sad reality is that even though God desires all people to be saved from coming judgment, and even though he has sent his son to die for the sins of all of humanity so that nobody has to go to hell and be judged, the sad reality is most people will wind up going to hell not because God wants it, but because they want it. <gasps> Who wants to go to hell? Nobody wants to go to hell. But if you're not for me, Jesus is your what? So by rejecting Christ, you automatically choose hell. When people say, how could I got to love some people to hell? Oh, it's so terrible. A God of love doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to go there. A God of love has provided a way by which you might not have to go to hell. But it's up to you. He's provided a way, but you have to receive that gift. It's an offer. You have to receive that gift of salvation. Now, there are those who say, when they hear me talk about how that mankind can resist God's will, they say, you can't resist the sovereign will of God. It's irresistible. Really? Well, that's not what Jesus tells us here in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, I wanted to gather you to myself. I wanted to protect you, but you were not willing. You were not willing. That's not what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 when he stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and um, was basically being tried by them. And he gives his defense in chapter 7 of Acts, recounts Israel's history, and how that at numerous times in their history, the people of God resisted the servants that God brought to help them. Moses initially, Joseph, and then he really nails them. He makes it personal. Okay, that's a good preacher. He makes it personal. Acts 7.51 looks these guys right in the eye and says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit just as your forefathers did, so you do also. Look, God is God. God can do whatever he wants to do. And if God wanted to force us to believe, he could certainly do that. Now, there are those who believe he does do that. I don't believe that. I don't believe God forces us to do anything. I believe we have a free will given to us by God, and I don't believe God will violate our free will to make us love him, to make us believe in Jesus. Hey, look, I was telling first service, I've been down to Disney World, all right? I see what they got going on down there. They're doing incredible things with, with animatronics down there. 
and as real and lifelike as these, these robots are, and they look pretty real, don't they? If I could program one of them to tell me it loved me, and I could probably do that if I knew how, wouldn't mean too much, would, you, would it? I mean, to program a robot to say, I love you, how meaningful is that? And for God to program us as robots to say to him, I love you, I love you, I believe in you, that's not meaningful love. We wouldn't accept that as any kind of meaningful love. And God's less than us? Of course God wouldn't accept that as meaningful. That's why he created us with a free will. Because God knows any kind of love has to be freely given if it's going to mean anything. And so that, that's why the Bible is not full of commands, be saved. It's full of invitations. One of the more famous ones we've already studied, Matthew uh, eleven twenty-eight. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me. The New Testament is full of invitations to receive Jesus and corresponding denunciations for those who refuse to do that. One would be in John 5, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 40, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, but you are not willing to come to me that I might give you this life. God has given us a free will. He says, come to me that I might save you and bless you and protect you and give you an inheritance that will never fade away in heaven. But if you say, I don't want your gift, I don't want it to have anything to do with you, God says, I accept that. It grieves me, but I accept that. I honor your free will. Of course, the decision a person makes with regard to Jesus is going to affect their eternal destiny. Look, we've said this before, let me say it again. We have the freedom to make our choices. We don't have the freedom to choose our consequences. I have the freedom to decide whether or not I'm going to jump off a building. If I do, I don't have the freedom to choose whether or not I hit the ground. Right? I have the freedom to decide if I'm going to put my hand on a fire. I do not have the freedom to decide if I'm going to get burned if I do so. We have the ability to make our choices, but we don't have the ability to choose our consequences. And here's what, again, we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes. He's not limiting it to anybody. Oh, but I'm so bad, you don't know how bad I am. God could never accept me. Oh, think again. Anyone can get saved. I don't care how bad your life has been. Whoever believes in him will not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or her. Look, God desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world that people wouldn't have to go to hell. And those who choose to receive Christ, well, the consequence is that you are now a child of God protected from what's coming. Judgment's coming. But you can reject Jesus. But if you do know this, the wrath of God abides on you and someday he will judge you. Does he want to do that? No, he wants to save you. But if you reject his son, well, then there's no other choice left but judgment. See, God doesn't want to bring judgment upon people. He wants to protect them from that judgment. That's exactly what Jesus meant in verse 37 when he said, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Look, the image of a mother bird 
gathering her chicks to herself, then covering them with her wings, is a picture of love, tender care, and listen, protection. Protection. Protection from enemies, and, as Jesus is using it here in Matthew 23, protection from coming judgment. There is only one way a person is going to be protected from coming judgment. Only one way. And that is to be in Christ. In Christ. It's called salvation. Remember what the writer of the Proverbs said in Proverbs 18, verse 10? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are what? Safe. Well, sure, once we get saved, you know, every time the devil comes attacking or something, we run to God and we're protect, he protects us. But salvation is all about accepting Christ and entering into him, being securely sealed in Christ. That's where the protection comes on a day-by-day basis and when it comes to ultimate judgment. Listen to me. There is a movie out currently called Noah. Uh, can I encourage you not to spend the 15 bucks? Because the only similarities that movie has with the biblical account of Noah's life is water, a big boat, and a guy named Noah. Well, that's about it. I mean, the movie was produced by an atheist who rewrote the whole thing. And God judges the world not because of man's sins, but because we're not picking up trash. Uh, you know, we're, we're messing up the environment. You know, I didn't even want to go there. It, it, I think you understand. But in the real account of Noah, in Genesis, the Ark of Noah, the Ark of Noah, listen to me, is the most powerful type of Christ on this subject you'll find anywhere in Scripture. So the Ark is done. What did God say to Noah? Did he say, get in the Ark? He said what? Come into the Ark. He was inviting come into the ark, which means God was in the ark. Okay? But he invited Noah. He didn't say, get your butt in the ark. God doesn't say, get into Christ. He says, come into Christ. Receive my son. Right? When Noah and his family entered the ark, and of course God brought all the... He didn't go around with a butterfly net catching butterflies and things like that. You know, God brought all the animals to the ark. Let's not get ridiculous now. I mean, okay... Anyways, when everything and everybody was safely in the ark, who shut that door? Read the account. God did. God sealed Noah and his family in that ark. Who sealed you in Christ until the day of redemption? The Holy Spirit. We'll read about that in a second. When you and I received Christ, we accepted God's invitation, we came to Jesus, accepted him as Lord and Savior, we were placed in him by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit sealed us in Christ until the day of redemption. Now, there are those that say, well, yes, but you can, you can get out of Christ if you want to. You can lose your salvation. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think Noah would have wanted to get out of that ark even if he could? I mean, think about it. Here you're in an ark. Inside is safety and security. Outside is the floods of judgment. Inside is life. Outside is death. What do you think? If I'm Noah, I'm not feeling trapped. I'm feeling secure. Okay? I'm feeling secure. And that's how it is in Christ. I know that in Christ is life. Outside of Christ is judgment. 
why in the world would I want to get out of Christ, even if I could? And if you're really in Christ, you're really a Christian, you're not going to want to get out of Christ, okay? People that walk away from the Lord, to me, never knew the Lord. Uh, that's another sermon. Okay, but, <laughs> but there is another judgment coming, a worldwide judgment coming upon this planet. We read about it in Revelation 6, Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And God is going to bring a judgment upon this whole world, and the only way to escape it is to be sealed in Christ. Again, Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, in Christ, also you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Spirit of God seals us in Christ. And that will save us from what's coming. And even if a person receives Christ during the tribulation period, as God is pouring his judgment out upon this world, he seals them so that the judgment doesn't touch their lives. Because God doesn't punish the righteous with the wicked. Okay? So getting back now to Matthew 23, Jesus said, you know, I wanted to gather you guys under my wings. I didn't want to see judgment come upon the nation. I wanted you were not willing. Therefore, verse 38, see your house is left to you, what? Desolate. I believe the house that Jesus had in mind was primarily a reference to the temple. The temple. And even though only a few days earlier Jesus had referred to the temple as my father's house in chapter 21, when he said that he was quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7, which was spoken seven centuries before Jesus lived. And originally when God first created the temple, had it built, he called it his house. In fact, when Solomon finished it, and you see this incredible dedication service, a worship service that was probably unparalleled in their history. And at the end of that worship service, as people are singing and cheering and praising God, suddenly the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, comes down and enters the temple and rests above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. God's presence literally now dwelt in the temple. Well, many years has passed. The nation got involved in gross immorality, idolatry, child sacrifice, all kinds of horrible things. God sent prophet after prophet to warn them to repent before it was too late. Judgment was going to come. They refused. They killed the prophets. And this week I challenge you to read Ezekiel chapter 10 because we see one of the saddest images in Israel's history after many years of trying to get the people to repent for their sins. At one point, Ezekiel describes a scene in the temple. He shows how that the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, lifted up off the mercy seat, begins to move out of the temple, stops at the threshold, as if to look back one last time, and then goes across the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, and disappears in the distance. The glory of God had departed. Did that stop temple services? Not at all. People kept offering sacrifice like nothing happened. At that point, God was no longer in their worship. They were offering to him dead religious ceremonies and practices. And so God had vacated the temple many years earlier, and the Jews had profaned it for so long that now Jesus doesn't really call it the Father's house. He calls it their house. 
God's not involved anymore. It's your house. It's a den of thieves. It's full of merchandising and corruption. Don't pin it on my father. Don't call it my father's house. You've polluted it. So in a very technical sense, I think the house Jesus refers to in verse 39, uh, verse, um, verse 38, is speaking of the temple. But in a broader sense, guys, when Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate, I believe the house could be a reference to the whole house of Israel. And I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but try to stay with me because I really want to lay a good groundwork for next time. The broader sense is that the house Jesus is referring to in verse 38 speaks of the whole house of, of Israel. We know that after the judgment came in 70 AD, uh, the Jews were dispersed throughout the world. The nation of Israel ceased to exist, all right? Uh, it ended. And for 1,900 years, the Jews wandered and had no homeland. That is until May 14, 1948, when the modern state of Israel was reborn. Now, do you realize that six centuries before Jesus, Ezekiel had prophesied of this resurrection of the nation? God, in, verse, in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, shows him a vision of a valley full of dry bones. We've talked about this. And God says to Ezekiel, as he sees this valley full of dried bones, I mean, they were there a long time, dead a long time. God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel says, well, Lord, you're God, you tell me. And so God says, just watch. And the bones begin to rattle. They begin to come together. Skeletons are formed. Then muscle is formed on the skeletons and skin. And suddenly this entire nation stands up of bodies okay of bodies the problem was as ezekiel sees this he notices that there was no breath in them breath is the hebrew word ruach which means the word for spirit when israel was going to be reborn they were going to be reborn not as a spiritual nation but as a secular nation there are some believers in israel some jews that believe don't get me wrong but for the most part, Israel is a secular nation. They're a nation. They've been reborn, but they have not been born again spiritually of the Spirit. But after Ezekiel sees this, and these, this whole nation standing up, nation having been reborn after many, many centuries, God in explaining it says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones, listen, are the whole house of Israel. They're going to be judged at one point. That was 70 AD. But in the last days, I'm going to gather my people back to their land. They're going to be reborn as a nation. They no longer will be two nations, Judah and Israel. They'll be one nation. And they will once again speak pure Hebrew, which has never been done in the history of the world, where a people has been out of their land for almost 2,000 years to be regathered, born again as a nation, and to speak a language that had died. Hebrew was a dead language. It's the common language of Israel to this day. And God says, when that happens, you know you are in the last of the last days. And my son is coming. Now, let's look at verse 39 of Matthew 23. We'll bring this to a close. Jesus said, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I've been rejected. Palm Sunday was the day. The nation should have received me as Messiah. I was rejected. And you're not going to see me anymore. 
until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as I said, that statement by Jesus closes out chapter 23, but it also transitions us into chapter 24 and becomes the basis for a few very important questions that really chapter 24 is built around. Those questions come out of chapter 24, verse 3. We'll study those next time. But you need to understand something. That from the time these men, now we're talking Jewish men, from the time they were just little boys, they had been taught that when Messiah came, he would lead them in a revolt at that time. Rome was in power. So he would lead them, the Jewish people, in a revolt against the Roman government, throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, and establish a kingdom on the earth where Messiah would be king over the entire earth and the Jews would be his prime ministers. Uh, we know that the kingdom is prophesied in numerous places in the Old Testament. Numerous places. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Isaiah chapter 11 and ver uh, chapter 35, and also through scriptures like the one we, uh, we hear a lot uh, about uh, around Christmas time. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This is kingdom stuff, okay? Talking about Messiah's reign in the kingdom. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The worldwide kingdom government. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Look, the disciples knew these scriptures. And they believed Jesus Christ was the Messiah, which meant they also believed at one point in his ministry he was going to bring the kingdom, because that's what they always believed. When Messiah comes, he's going to bring the kingdom. They're waiting for it. The whole, his whole ministry they were waiting for. It. Palm Sunday, kingdom fever reached its pitch. And yet, instead of bringing the kingdom, he weeps. He talks about coming judgment. And he says, I'm going away. You're not going to see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The dream has been shattered. There's no kingdom coming. As I pointed out earlier, the, that phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comes from Psalm 118, in particular, verse 26. And again, was shouted by Jesus' disciples on Palm Sunday to officially announce him as the Messiah and King of Israel who had come to establish God's kingdom. However, the nation and its leaders had rejected him. Why did they reject him? Because he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. Who did they want? They wanted a lion. He was the Lamb of God. They wanted, you know, a warrior conqueror who would kill their enemies. Jesus was the wonderful counselor who taught them to love their enemies. And therefore the prophecy of Isaiah 53.3 came to pass. He was despised and rejected by men. There's a lot of people today who, whether they know it or not, have rejected the true Messiah and have embraced a false Messiah. We've talked about this. For many people, Jesus Christ is not the Savior of the world who came to save us from our sins, which means we have to repent and receive him. No, he's an environmentalist who came to teach us how to love the earth, take care of it, you know? Noah, right? The movie Noah, you know? God destroyed this world because people weren't taking care of the earth. 
Some think Jesus is the investment banker. I invest my money with Jesus. If I give to the work of God, he'll multiply it 100 times 100-fold, right? It's Jesus the invest, investment banker. Some believe that Jesus is, you know, kind of a sanctified Dr. Phil, psychologist who has come to make me happy. <laughs> I mean, God wants you happy, doesn't he? I mean, God wants us happy. Just don't tell me about sin. Don't tell me you've got to change anything. Just tell me how God wants me happy. So all these folks have different concepts of Jesus than who he is. He is the Jesus who came to save us from our, not our poverty, not, uh, you know, environmental bad stuff, uh, not from a lot of things people think Jesus is here to save them from. He came to save us from our sins. So Israel rejected him. And the next time Israel would utter the words, listen, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Messianic Psalm, would be at his second coming. When the Jews would no longer be unbelieving, but would welcome him as their Messiah and King as he comes through the clouds. Revelation 19, many Jewish people who have become believers will escape the Antichrist hiding out. And when they see Jesus returning to the planet Earth, they are going to say in total faith, blessed is he who comes. Jesus is our Messiah. Here he comes. We want him to be our king. We accept him for who he is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can read about this in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. And at that time, he will set up the kingdom. He will set up the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. It will begin. Until then, at his first coming, they rejected him. And so he says to them, well, I'm going to be going away now. You're not going to see me anymore until you say as a nation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He leaves the temple area, walks across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, sits down. His disciples come to him and say to him, basically, Lord, you're going away. You're not coming again until a certain point. Can you tell us what would be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And that, guys, lays the groundwork for probably the greatest discourse in the Bible. One that is known as the Olivet Discourse, or the teaching that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. That's what chapter 24 is all about. So you want to come back next time. Of course, next week is Easter, so we'll study, have a little something special on that day. But then after that, we are going to dig into Matthew 24. And um, it's one of the most prophetic incredible chapters in the Bible that teaches us what's coming. What's coming. The Bible says God has not left us in darkness, but the coming of Christ should take us by surprise. He has given us signs to look for. There are those who say, oh, you shouldn't worry about prophecy. It just gets you focused on the, you know, on the pie in the sky. We've got to work right now. Hey, I'm working. I'm working. But I'm looking. I can work and look. I can do two things at once. Okay, I can live and watch. If you stop looking, stop looking, you stop being ready. You start saying the Lord delays his coming. That's evil. So when people say you shouldn't study prophecy, really? 
27% of the Bible is prophecy. You're telling me to stop studying 27% of God's word? No, no. He wants us to know the signs of his coming. He wants us to be ready and watching. So we'll study that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word, Lord, gives us light. It gives us truth. It gives us signs to look for that indicate your coming, Lord Jesus, is near. We know it is near, even at the door. And Lord, we know that Israel blew it. And yet, Lord, you're giving them a second chance. And Lord, when it comes to us as individuals, we often blow it. But Lord, you give us second chances. And Lord, we want to adjust our lives accordingly. We don't want to live in unbelief any longer. We don't want to live, Lord, with our eyes on the world. We want to live in faith. We want to live with our eyes upon you, Lord, and waiting for your return. Ready, working, watching. Give us grace to do that. And so, Father, we ask you to bless our time as we move into chapter 24, that we might be ready. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.